We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome to the we Layman's Lounge podcast. A ministry of the laymanslounge.com where we exist to bring everyday theology for everyday life. On the other line is Dr. Charles E. Cotterman. Dr. Cotterman is pastor and planter of Oil City Vineyard Church in Oil City, Pennsylvania. Uh, he's taught church history at Fuller Seminary and Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and is currently program director at the Project on Ru Rural Ministry at Grove City College, which I hope you'll talk about a little bit. Uh, Dr. Cotterman Dr. is the contributing, uh, a contributing co-editor of Sent to Flourish, A Guide to Planting and Multiplying Churches, and author of the book we will be discussing today, a book that came out a year ago today, um, and the book is called To Think Christianly, A History of Labrie, Regent College, and the Christian Study Center Movement, and that's IV IVP Academic. Before I jump in, I'm going to uh, want to let you guys know the good folks at IVP are allowing us to give away a copy of the book. So to enter, um, just share this interview link on social media and tag us. We will announce the winner in one week. So brother, um, aloha and many mahalos for joining us from the attic. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so perhaps citing a few examples, what is a study center and what are aspects of them that have and continue to appeal to like normal Christians? Yeah, great question. Because a lot of people haven't heard about a study center, um, even though they, you know, they're actually a growing movement within Christianity today. So the way I describe a study center, and I think this is the way most people in it would describe it, is a Christian study center is a local Christian community dedicated to spiritual, intellectual, and relational flourishing via the cultivation of deep spirituality, intellectual and artistic engagement, and a hospitable presence. And really, all those things have to be there. You know, the spiritual aspect, the intellectual, cultural, artistic aspect, you know, they're engaging ideas and that hospitable presence. Because an online teaching is not a study center. A study center is a place. Hmm. And so, so many of these places are next to universities, um, and they kind of are right off campus. So they're, they're uh, within reach of the university, but they're not uh, you know, dependent on leasing university space for their ministries. And you, you mentioned a few different types of study centers. They're like ones near universities. There's ones that are like destination, like you said, like Labrie was one and um, like R.C. Sproul's like Ligonier Valley was sort of one like that. Um, can you, can you give us like a case study of someone? And I don't know if you, if you know this or not, so it's all right if you just want to mm -hmm. punt on it, but can you give us like a case study of someone who is a part of a study center, just like sort of your average participant, not necessarily someone sure. who went on to make another study center, but yeah. like maybe telling us how it shaped them or how they ended up living out their lives, carrying with them what they learned and encountered at their study center. Sure. So one of our close friends is a woman named Jane Bob. She's a retired nurse. And she was a young single nursing student in the very early days of UVA's Center for Christian Study in the mid seventies. 
and she got involved just kind of as they were renovating the new house that they bought in 76 and she was painting and you know tearing out demoing and all this and eventually she actually becomes part of the board um but she, she maintains this lifelong connection to the study center even though you know her vocation's something different she's never on staff officially and she continues to live in the city of charlottesville and actually helps to launch like a women's bible study at trinity presbyterian church that becomes a very sizable midweek bible study and so mm -hmm. When we show up in Charlottesville, before I even really knew about the study center, my wife gets pulled into this Bible study and it becomes a blessing to her and we're still in touch with them and they're still a blessing to us. Mm -hmm. So you can't talk about study centers without like every interview, you you always like have to hit, you know, Labrie and, and Francis and Edith, Edith Schaefer because they're like the, uh, I feel like they're the Carl Bart or like Calvin's Institutes, you've have you've got to reference them good and bad. They right. were like the standard. So in connection with them, you said that many people encountered a, and then this is a quote from the book, a multifaceted community. And so we're talking about Libri here, a multifaceted community where spirituality and the search for beauty and truth through art and, in, and intellectual engagement were set within a context of relationship and open-handed hospitality, end quote. And then a few, I'm going to string some, some quotes sure. together to make a point. And a few pages later, you said, quote, understanding spirituality at Labrie begins with understanding the centrality of prayer to the Schaefer's, to the Schaefer's work and the common life of those who stayed at Labrie, end quote. And so those coupled with the fact that Schaefer used the Bible um, as his as his main source, main medium, and I think he even had a you know had a formal church. Um, can we say that what made these places so compelling is because even though they're parachurch, they're sort of you know, and we don't want to get busted here, so we're not saying it, but they're actually functioning almost the closest thing to what you know where I'm going with this, don't you? They're almost functioning like to what maybe a local church should be. They definitely, they definitely are doing some things that a local church, you know, you would, you would hope they would do, but they're focusing, they, they have the luxury of being able to kind of focus on things, you know, Schaefer doesn't have to be out there doing funerals and hospital visits and things that a pastor would do, though he is pastoring, he preaches on Sunday, um, but yeah, the idea of hospitable presence, that's something that, you know, you would hope a church would have intellectual engagement with one's faith yeah and deep spirituality those are all things that that we we would hope to find in a church but they get to focus on them and in some sense it's also because god really gifted them and they were just great at what they did um and it's helpful to remember that schaefer was always a pastor first you know and he was best as a pastor because sometimes he would get out of his depth on philosophy or something you know he was never formally trained beyond undergrad and that and a little bit of seminary um, but as a pastor, his instincts were really good. Mm -hmm. So in your own, like, in, like for you, brother, in your own church planting, cause you're a planter and a pastor and you know, your labors as a pastor, where have you like intentionally brought in aspects of what you learned from study centers? You're like, Oh, that is just yeah. genius. I'm going to rope that in. Yeah. So I definitely thought about this when we moved back from Charlottesville, I was um, halfway through, not quite halfway through writing my dissertation. So I wrote my dissertation literally as we were planting a church. And so as I'm thinking about this, I think the biggest thing that we made 
kind of put into the DNA of Oil City Vineyard was the idea of hospitality and home-based hospitality. So it wasn't just, we did have food, we did have places that were kind of like art galleries at church. We would take whole Sunday mornings for an art gallery, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, and we would have food every week at church. But um, it was also, Amy and I made it a, a point to invite a lot of people into our home, which we mm -hmm. still do. Um, and, and I feel the Schaefer's pain too. Doing it with little kids is a little tricky sometimes. You know, we have a lot of like 8.30 meetings after the kids are in bed till like 11 or 12. Um, but yeah, that hospitality piece is what I think I've been able to apply. And I am hoping to be able to do more with the intellectual piece and this, you know, and obviously the spiritual piece, we believe in prayer and we, we try to try to live like that, you know? So this has shaped my ministry. In, in talking about James Houston, who was at the helm of Regent College for so long, you write that he had, quote, a personal aversion to what he felt was an increasing overemphasis on professionalism in all of light, end quote. And then you continue on, quote, for Houston, all professionalism was, sus was suspect, but religious professionalism, especially so end quote. And then a few pages later, you said, quote, this vision amounted to what soon became Houston's golden standard, Regent College, an institute dedicated to making lay people more thoroughly Christian in their everyday lives and their secular uh, and their secular careers. So I could like just finish this interview by saying amen <laughs> for the yeah. next 30 minutes to that. But instead, right. I'll, I'll ask you like, and I'm probably being a little overly zealous here because the level that I agree with that is, yeah. is insane, but how can, I don't even know how, how you're going to answer this, or you could just speak to, but how can Christian leaders, be it professors or pastors or parachurch laborers, hear such like a scathing slash compelling diagnosis, and mm -hmm. then consider like these obvious felt needs of the sheep, yet sort of, and here's where I'm being a jerk, whatever, but yet sort of keep playing theology as a hobby or keep answering questions that folks aren't really asking and pushing a truncated Christian faith. I know I, I, I went, I swung hard there. I know whatever yeah. when they should, as you title the last section of your book be quote, nurturing holistic flourishing. Yeah. I, I think, you know, especially in this day and age, it's only gotten worse since Houston's time. This kind of, Oh, that's gross. <laughs> Like this idea of, you know, the increasing specialization, right? Mm -hmm. So we all want to, we all want to be able to demonstrate that we know that we're specialists in our field, right? Mm. And Houston was, you know, he wanted to demonstrate that he was a person alive to God, right? And, and so I love when they're writing that book in the 60s, and they're asking all these uh, professionals, you know, like, you're a biologist and they say, they title the chapter, a biologist examines his face, faith, you know, and then, a, you know, like a, a politician examines his faith and they go through all these professions and like, they're trying to get someone from everyone. They want Houston to do the geography piece. Uh, and he titles his chapter, uh, a God-shaped person, you know, and, and that mm -hmm. is just what he's after is this idea that it's the person uh, and their connection to God, not their professional identity that's essential. So you know? good. So and good. And it's super compelling. And, and the fact, the, the way he lives, and, you know, the fact that he's a geographer who's also a deep, 
you know, student of theology and the Bible and spiritual theology, as it comes to be called, uh, he's a really compelling figure. So just as a, like a side note and take all the time you went on this, because I ended up like trolling all over the internet and I could not find, I couldn't figure this out. So can you provide <laughs> examples or definitions of the differences in between like a study center, an institute, a coalition, a think tank, a society, a network, and a project? I can't. I can't give you good definitions on those. But, you know, the thing about a study center is it is a community that's rooted in a place. You know, like a think tank, you might show up for a little bit, do some thinking, leave, you know. Mm. Um, so, I, I, you know, in some sense, uh, the C.S. Lewis Institute functions a little bit like a think tank. Mm. You know, it, it's, it, it has some lectures. It's not, it's not um, you know, a place people live necessarily. It's just they're throughout the city and they're, mm. they're bringing ideas together. Mm. Whereas study centers, um, the kind that I really focus on toward the end, especially these university ones, are really anchored in a home, in a house, you know, in a building. And, and so that, that makes it um, a little bit different. It really is a center. It's right centered in a place. Got you. Okay, so I sort of rapid fired you, but if you could like maybe give us a a an, a pretty good overview of just basically maybe Labrie and then um, and then Regent. I know a lot of people have a good idea of Labrie, but if you could, you know, zoom up out a little bit and then especially share on Regent because so. Like full disclosure, a lot of people I read who I love, I'm like, hey, all these people are from Regent, and I never right. understood like what's re what is Regent, and there's like right. five Regents, like what is so. Anyways, yeah, I'm not sure if you could and take take yeah. your time here. I'd really like for you to maybe just show the connection and even the pipeline and all that. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. So if you want to understand, I'm going to work backward for a second. If you want to understand how in the world there are study centers popping up at major universities, because that's what's grabbing people's attention today. Like, oh, Yale has a study center. Oh, Cornell. Oh, UVA. Oh, the University of Florida. Oh, Berkeley. They have study centers. And like people are interested in that. Um, if you want to understand how that happened, you have to actually go back to the 50s and 60s. And, and it's a crazy thing. Um, and it's, there is historical precedent for this, but like it's not in America that it's happening. Americans actually pull from Europe and European influenced societies, and then it happens in America. So it's an American pastor, Francis Schaeffer and, and Edith, and they're really a team. Uh, you can't understand Labrie without the two of them. I, I always say they're the second most influential couple in 20th century American evangelicalism after Billy Graham and Ruth. Mm. Um, and so Francis and Edith, they go to Europe in 48 in post-World War, you know, a ravaged continent, and their specialty is children's ministry. And they get sent through a fundamentalist mission board to be ministers to children and to assess what's going on. And while they're over there, a few things start to happen. One, Schaefer starts going increasingly to museums. Their, their girls are growing up. They start going to college. He starts interacting with European college students and his his framework starts to kind of be enlarged at the same time the American influences coming out of a separatist fundamentalism those start to fade away so he's really entering a new kind of freedom because he was in one of the most separatist fundamentalist denominations um, Carl McIntyre was a mentor okay 
Well, when it gets to Europe, that starts to change. The other thing that starts to happen is they start having a lot of young people and older people too over to their house for tea, for coffee, and they just start talking and they find that the Lord is really ministering in that. And so over time, they start to transition more and more to these kind of conversations about deep things of God over, over their kitchen table. And their mission board doesn't like it. They start to cut their funding. And by the fall of 54, they're starting to entertain this idea for what they call, what Schaefer calls Labrie, the shelter. And Edith starts sketching out images of it. And she's, you know, writing like stay for uh, comfort tea and coffee and stay to chat, you know, and this is the idea, just hospitable, spiritual, intellectual community. Well, in 55, they actually, the Lord intervenes in kind of what many in the, who tell the story think is a miraculous way. And they find an amazing house and they're, they almost had been kicked out of Switzerland, but they're allowed to stay. In that summer of 55, they finally sever ties with the fundamentalist mission board and they start hosting people in their home. And at first it's a trickle and there's almost no money. They're completely faith-based. And this is where prayer comes in. The only thing they had as a connect connection is their prayer list. And so it's what Edith called her praying family. And so they would just pray for daily provision. And sometimes they'd eat a lot of cornflakes. And sometimes Edith would rake through the coals, you know, to get a little bit more out of the firewood. But eventually people start trickling in, college students, American GIs, people like that. By 60, someone's tipped off Time Magazine. They do an article called Schaefer, uh, Missionary to the Intellectuals, uh, and, and, and basically say, we don't know what to do with this guy. He talks about Pause. the law. Pause. Yeah. Do you yeah. own a copy of that magazine? I do not own a copy of that magazine. I've, I've looked at it, but I don't own it. <laughs> Somebody send this guy a copy of that magazine, please, if you're hearing this. All right. So, thanks yeah, keep great. going bro yeah so so it starts he starts to get a little traction but it's really in the mid-60s he a couple people with connections to schools in boston especially harvard are kind of like they're kind of cosmopolitan uh they're centering it over there in europe and they run into schaefer and they say we got to take this back to our schools and so when schaefer goes to boston in 65 he kind of emerges onto the american imagination again and he's, he's just, by this point, this kind of long-haired, goatee, knicker-wearing guy that no <laughs> one can quite put their finger on, right? And then he does, after he does MIT and Harvard and that, that, all that, he eventually that year also does a tour of like Wheaton and Westmont and these kind of Christian liberal arts schools. And people, at student, more and more students start to come. Mm -hmm. And then by 68, when his first two books are released, um, The God Who's There and Escape from Reason, uh, put together from his uh, talks, at that point, Edith writes, we've started to realize there's not going to be an off season anymore. Mm. And so this is where like people like Oz Guinness would say 68 was the Zenith. Mm. It was where it still felt like a home. And yet people were inviting in from all over the world. Um, but after that, the breeze starts to almost be overwhelming. And by 73, Edith is starting to say, it doesn't even feel like a home anymore. It feels like a youth hostel or something. Everywhere I go, my picture's getting snapped. And they actually have to get another apartment because they're just overwhelmed by their own success. Now, what made them so successful? Really quickly, I argue that it's because they were a deeply spiritual community. Um, they re people that went there really believed that when the Schaefers prayed, they meant it and God answered. Mm. You know, they wanted to be a demonstration of the God who's there. And people that were there say, we saw this happen. You know, like, it was amazing. Um, the other thing that it was, was an intellectual community, you know, mm -hmm. in a day and age where 
you couldn't even watch R-rated movies at places like Wheaton or anything like that. You know, Schaefer's interacting with films from all these European directors and he's talking about existentialism and, and you know, in, these curious young evangelicals, baby boomers found it scintillating. They couldn't get enough of it. Hmm. Um, just the fact that it was worth talking about. Uh, in addition to that, it was a hospitable community. People, they had grab bags of clothes. You showed up as a you know, backpacking through Europe and they'd hand you some new clothes and stuff, you know, and that's, that was so compelling. And for the Schaefer's, that was a call. You know, they talk about within a year or two, all their wedding presents are ruined. Like, you know, there's people been smoking their sheets, there's holes in their sheets, you know, mm -hmm. like, but they mm -hmm. felt called to it. And they actually mm -hmm. called the American church out. And they said, why aren't you doing this more? Oh. Um, he called the church out on things like racism too. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, pretty compelling form of host, lived out hospitality. Mm, mm. And then the last thing I like to say about Labrie is it became an aspirational community. So many people went there and said, I want to live like this. I want to live a deeply spiritual life. I want to live a life that tries to find integration between my spiritual identity and my intellectual identity and wants to integrate art and things into it. And they wanted to live a life that was defined by beauty. I mean, Edith would put out these elaborate place settings and and so that aspirational part of it led people to want to start their own study yeah. centers like Labrie, yeah. which Schaefer very often said no to. He wasn't trying to create a mini Labrie movement. Mm. Uh, once in a while, they did happen. Um, and some people did them, just didn't call them Labrie. Um, and the other thing is the aspiration was also just to actually integrate all of life under God, this kind of Kuiperian idea that Jesus looks at the whole world and says, mine. Yeah. They, they saw how that, what that looked like, right? Mm -hmm. And so people, scholars talk about a vocational revolution within evangelicalism, this idea that, you know, we got a lot of professors out of the folks that had ties to Schaefer, you know, within the evangelical world. So that's Labrie. Um, and, and from 60 on, by the way, they have the Farrell House, which is an actual study center within Libri, where you would study like four hours a day and then work like in the garden or something, mm -hmm. building walls, whatever they needed the other part of the day. So there was an actual study center within Labrie, kind of a specific for studying. Mm. Now, Regent, and like you said, I do, I think Labrie is the one people know about. They might not know everything about it, but they know quite a bit. Regent College is one that people often don't know about, although, like you said, they have been influenced by people like Eugene Peterson or J.I. Packer or Bruce Waltke, you know, these folks that influence the whole generation um, and continue to. Yeah. The first thing I have to say about Regent is it is not Regent University. This is not Pat Robertson's school in Virginia Beach. Okay. <laughs> Big distinction between the two. And Regent College was first. So Regent University, they, they took the name second. <laughs> so Regent College comes out of, of all places, the Plymouth Brethren. Now, there are two types of Plymouth Brethren. One's kind of a separatist uh, sect and one is they call themselves the open brethren mm. they're they're still conservative in their faith beliefs but they're willing to work with people outside the community mm. that's the kind of community of brethren there were in vancouver it was a really robust one they had a lot of actually pretty affluent people mm. uh, and marshall shepherd was a shoe merchant who had done very well and he had started a journal up there and it's shepherd that actually has this idea for a training school for brethren uh young young people now the interesting thing about the brethren is they don't ordain clergy mm. so 
it wasn't a seminary, but it was a theological training school for laity. But some of these laity would be preaching almost every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the kind of idea that's happening. They start thinking, who could, who could lead this? Um, and their first idea is F.F. Bruce, actually, the, the famous New Testament scholar um, from the UK. And Bruce, he's in a really good position over there. He's a scholar at heart. He doesn't want to do it. But he recommends Houston, James Houston, who's a geographer, son of missionaries. And he eventually leaves his position at one of the colleges in Oxford. He had worked his way almost to the top of the local college. Um, and he decides to come over. It's, it's another faith venture. They don't know how this is going to go. They, they launched the first uh, summer school in 69. Um, and and the, the next fall, they have actual four students in class. Um, and the goal for Houston is to engage the university and, and help lay people think about how the faith impacts all their life. Now, they have some of the same things. They have hospitality. I mean, this is a small community. Professors are boarding students sometimes at their house. Like, they're barely making it by, so they need that rent money, and they want to help out. They're having, they don't have a space of their own, so they're having, like, their parties at professors' houses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really integrated um, along the same lines, deep, deeply spiritual, and yet very much intellectual. And here's the distinction. Schaefer kind of existed with the exception of Hans Ruckmacher in a world of his own. And mm-hmm. he had a lot of his protégés around him, but he really wasn't connected to the academic community. In fact, right, he right. pushed them away, right? So when George Marsden and Richard Mao want to take students from Calvin there, he says, the students can come, but you guys can't when they're young. <laughs> right? Just insecurity almost, maybe. Mm. Um, potentially, right? But the op- region's the opposite. They're like people like Ward Gask, you know, and Carl Armanding, they're starting to like edit book lists for Christianity Today on the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're getting involved in the societies. They're mm-hmm. they're working mm-hmm. with scholars at other schools. And so region becomes this kind of intellectual hub mm. that actually had intellectual firepower behind it, and yet a robust spirituality and hospitality mm-hmm. centered on lay people, which by the way also means that women can get more theological education there than in most evangelical seminaries of the mm-hmm. And what happens is Regent kind of becomes the logical post-Labrie step. Like you go to Labrie, you might accept the Lord. You know, you become a Christian from being an atheist or something. And you're like, wow, the world's huge. It's like, what do I do? And Regent, you know, often the Schaefer's would send you to like, maybe West, well, probably, probably Covenant. But you might go to, some people trickle to Gordon-Conwell or Westminster, but many also went to Regent. Mm. And it was this kind of place where, you know, Sharon Gallagher, for instance, who was really influential in this really cool group of hippie Christians in Berkeley um, called the Christian World Liberation Front. And she was one of the co-editors of Right On, which became Radix, uh, the most intellectually kind of engaged uh, underground newspaper of the of the Jesus People movement. Mm-hmm. Um, she goes, she encounters Schaefer at Westmont. She's a Plymouth brother and two from Southern mm-hmm. California. She encounters uh, Schaefer at Westmont, goes to Labrie, encounters people, encounters this community at Berkeley, ends up staying at Berkeley, but continuing her conversation with Labrie and then doing summer school at Regent. And that's one last thing to say about Regent. Regent had a hard time in the early days attracting top level scholars to their full-time positions. They got a lot of young scholars with promise, people like Ward Gass, Carl Armadang. Um, and then they had Houston and they had an, another one or two more senior scholars that also taught at the University of British Columbia, which was mm-hmm. Houston's goal. 
to be connected to that universe, mm. like at Oxford, like smaller colleges uh, affiliated with the larger university. That was mm. Houston's model. So it was an Oxford model. Mm. But the thing that Regent did that was just a great innovation that really shaped a generation of young Christians was they, they started launching a summer school. And the fascinating thing about summer school is most of these top-notch scholars might not want to be in Vancouver all the time, but they really might want to spend a couple of weeks in the summer right along the Pacific, in the mm-hmm. mountains, mm-hmm. in that gorgeous place, mm-hmm. working with students who, you know, who had come. And so there's these intensives during summer school and they eat lunch together and they really get to know people like John Scott, F.F. Bruce, you know, Hans Ruckmacher. And it goes from being this like celebrity that they read a book to a person they actually get to, to mm-hmm. see live out yeah. their life, which I yeah, think yeah. is a fascinating turn. And it had to be inspirational. Totally. I love, I love that, man. I, I love hearing that, that whole narrative and, and the book, you guys got to get the book. There's so many just sweet nuggets in there. Um, was this, was like the key cell, if, if you're not a Ply- Plymouth brethren, um, are you wanting to go to Regent because this is the guy who rubs shoulders with C.S. Lewis or like what, what was the draw? I mean, so a few things were the draw. One, um, it, it did become pretty amazing, especially as people that knew Lewis became fewer and fewer. And Houston, who's still alive uh, in his upper 90s, you know, was like one of the last living people that was an acquaintance of C.S. Lewis. Right. You know, so over the years, that connection even became more significant mm. um, because he, he wouldn't even call himself a friend of Lewis, but they were in the same Bible study. But Lewis was pretty guarded. Um, he was pretty famous by that time, too. Um, but I think the draw was, you know, Houston had been involved in InterVarsity in the UK. He comes in natural affinities to InterVarsity, and then he gets connected with Young Life, too. And so he's working the campus circuit. I mean, that's how the idea of the C.S. Lewis Institute even gets started. He's working the University of Maryland InterVarsity circuit, and he meets a the leader of a, a really cool Christian community called Cornerstone, Jim Hiskey, a former Mormon, former professional golf, golfer who finds Jesus and actually gets pulled into the presidential prayer breakfast by a U.S. senator and moves to Washington and is running this ministry at, at the University of Maryland. And when Houston's talking there to him that night, at the end of the night, he's like, we should start uh, Labrie East right here. And Hiskey's like, what? Like, I never, you know, but Hiskey had also been to Labrie. So there's all this cross-pollination. But by almost all accounts, Houston was this really charismatic in the sense of his personality was just so engaging that when he would talk in these places, people were like, I want to be around that guy. Mm. You know, I want to learn from that guy. I want to talk to him more. And he'd start up these long letter correspondences and just a a magnetic personality. Mm. Um, And people loved the way he was talking about engaging the university and engaging, uh, all professions as a lay person, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of the people that I love to, the way their story interacts in this is a guy that was at UVA. He graduated from UVA. Um, his name's Bayot Steiner. And the next year he did the one year, the uh, Diploma of Christian Ministry at Regent. Um, and it was one year, it was kind of like a gap year program before we really talked about gap years. Mm. And so before, you know, you get onto your career, you do this one year of theologically intense study. And he became um, Houston's uh, student assistant. And so he was with him all the time. And eventually 
he internalizes so much of Houston's kind of emphases that he can write the white paper on recreating Regent mm-hmm, for their mm-hmm. future planning. And then he goes on to found the study center at UVA. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's now a lawyer. He becomes a lawyer shortly thereafter, but he's a theologically astute lawyer. So good. And you, I mean, in mentioning that, like, Houston, like you, you made it very clear in the book that Houston really desired. I, I wasn't sure if he always wanted this, but he didn't really want, you know, more than like a hundred people. He really wanted to keep that thing. And I thought it was so cool. He, he didn't seem like a, he didn't seem like prideful. Like he was trying to make a name for himself because he really seemed like he wanted to, he saw this good thing that Labrie, but that Regent ended up having, and he wanted to like duplicate those. And like you mentioned, like his desire for Regent East or whatever. Um, and I know that you, um, you interviewed him, you know, and he, and like you mentioned, he's still alive. Did you get any sort of like retrospect from him where he was like, you know what, I really just wish we were able to duplicate more or, or anything that just any sort of retrospect that he really loved or appreciated or like, man, I wish I hit this harder. I wish I modified this. Or... Yeah, not a lot. Um, I will say this is still the idea that Regent was founded to without an MDiv and then eventually got an MDiv, became a training school for professionals. Like that part of the history is really contested by certain players in it. Um, and so people have a stake in that. And it's really, it's really interesting, you know, but the other interesting thing is, and as I point this out in the book, is it wasn't always easy for Houston or for the people that worked with him because he really wasn't an administrator at heart. He was like a personal he was a tutor, an Oxford tutor till the end. He could teach and he could work one-on-one, right? He wasn't really a principal type figure mm-hmm. because he wanted to just meet with students. And that's why he wanted hundreds so he could get to know them all. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. people, you know, people like Carl Armadang who are like, well, we have to pay the bills are like, we need a few more students <laughs> if we're going to pay for these professors to be here, if we're going to actually feed our own families, you know? And so there was this push and pull between the fact that Regent needed to be successful to pay the bills. Um, and people really thought they could do it without compromising their goal. But, but for Houston, it, it was a tough, it was a tough, tough thing. But what, what was amazing, and I still think this is amazing, is in so many cases like this, people go their separate ways. Like they just, you know, they get mad, they leave. But, you know, Ward Gasp, Carl Armading, James Houston. I mean, they stuck with Regent all together with differing ideas of what it should be. And they mm. stayed for decades. Mm. It's mm. fascinating how they could do that. Mm. You had mentioned like, um, you had mentioned Francis Schaeffer's uh, friendship with Hans Ruckmacher, um, like sort of like the, uh, you know, a Kuyperian sort of like Dutch neo-Calvinist or whatever. Mm. And I'm a part of this Facebook page. And I remember like last year we were like, we were just started this thread. We're like, what's up with Schaefer, man? He sounds like a hundred percent Kuyperian. He never even quoted. He's never even quoting Kuyper. He's never quoting Bobby, any of these guys. And then I, after I was reading some of your stuff, I posted some of the quotes up and it got the discussion going again. And someone's like, you know, I think at Covenant, when Schaefer went there, they were forced to read, you know, um, Kuyper's, um, um, oh, what oh, I forgot what they're called lectures on Calvinism or whatever. But um, having said that, like, I, I think you were saying also that that um, 
he was sort of like on his own and with the exception of Hans and that that sort of like I don't know rubbed him wrong but but um James Houston sort of had a like had a sort of a pushback against that and has that I don't think that it's sort of like ruined um Schaefer's legacy at all in, in any capacity but would you say that that they um I'm trying to think how to phrase it. it. That community was gathered around Schaefer. Yeah. Right. And then, but with Regent, um, it's probably not so much Houston, but maybe, but he's still engaged with other people. And then now if you could also mention the the whole Ligonier Valley and RC Sproul, because when I think of RC Sproul, I'm like, oh, that's like, you know, he was awesome. He's like popularized Reformation theology and it, just a ton of books and literature and then I kind of laughed in, in your book because you're talking about like at one point he's like long hair. He's like yeah. in Pennsylvania, like just just, you know, going on. But but then like sooner or later, he's like polished mass media guy, not to take anything away from him. But can you just give us a little glimpse in, into that as well? Yeah. So one of the things I, I point out and I I try to think about this in my own life. And I think it's helpful for anyone that wants to engage these things to think about. It's just the importance of being in like relationship with people, not just proteges and not just peers, but people who hold you accountable, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I think in both Schaefer and to a lesser extent in Sproul's case, like they, their communities, especially for Sproul. Yeah. It was pretty much throughout was pretty much like centered around an individual, you know, and, and they're, there are reasons why, I mean, they were very talented individuals. God had given them amazing abilities. Um, and they were, they were fascinating and great on a lot of levels. Um, at Regent, what's fascinating to me about Regent, and it's the kind of community I hope to be a part of myself, is where, you know, it could have been all about Houston, but he kind of, for various factors, it was partially him, but it was also because he had really strong people around him from the beginning and increasingly over time. I mean, J.I. Packer comes. I mean, that's a pretty strong person right there. Mm. You know, um, it didn't have to be one person. It really was a community. Mm -hmm. it, you know, the, the rough edges of different people, the community could soften and they could they could work together. That's good. Um, and so that that didn't happen the same in these kind of um, kind of you know, destination study centers like mm. uh, Labrie, they're kind of out on the island, you know, they're not in an academic community. Mm -hmm. Stallstown, I look at Stallstown and, and I, uh, you know, I'm a rural guy that's about two, two hours from Stallstown. Um, and, you know, I appreciate that about R.C. Sproul. He went to this rural place. I mean, Stallstown, if you go there today, you can barely find it. Like, it is not easy to find the Ligonier Study Center today, like where <laughs> it used to be. It, you have to really... You like you you second guess your GPS. You're like no, not not really, um, you know. And then you get there and it feels like a private house, and you're just like I'm gonna go now. Um, so the fact that he did that there, I mean, it was Dora Hillman, and she paved the way, and she gave mm -hmm. the property, sure. Mm -hmm. But for over a decade, he was faithful there, mm -hmm. and that small rural place trained up a heck of a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know. So it's pretty compelling. And I do think Sproul was more connected than Schaefer. I mean, you think about them hosting what uh, led to the Chicago Chicago Declaration of Inerrancy in 78. They hosted the first meeting in 74. Packer mm -hmm. shows up, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Montgomery shows up. So 
So Sproul is more connected, but you know, what's interesting with Sproul is um, his instincts are not to set himself up as kind of the personality, but when he hires a consultant in 77, the consultant says, you're the goose that lays the golden eggs. Mm-hmm. Everything needs to revolve around you. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, things change a little bit. Yep. Yep. Um, like just a real quick question on like, I know there's multiple Labris right now. What just like, just what do you know about like existing Labris? Like, is it, is there a similarity? Like, has it, obviously it's probably evolved with time, but what, what's to be expected with modern Labris? And also maybe you could just highlight a few modern um, studying centers that, that people seem to be pretty pleased with. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, there are, I think there's probably about mm, five to seven or eight Labris around the world right now. Um, and then there are things like I was last fall, I had a chance to have a great conversation with the guy who's in the friends of Labrie in Nashville. So it's not Labrie, but they're like oriented toward that. And they call themselves friends of Labrie. Genius. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so it's kind of cool. Um, I think there's some variation between them and yet some consistency with history. I mean, hospitality place is still going to be important. Um, I don't know any of them super well, but the one I know the best is the one up north of it, near Boston. And that story is really interesting. You have this couple who's really a protege during the boom years of Labrie. I mean, they're really uh, connected. And then their son, I believe it's their son and their daughter-in-law have just taken it over, but their son and daughter-in-law went to Regent and got their theological education at Regent and come back and they lead Labrie. Mm. So you can just see still the ties. Yeah. So there's like, when I think of Labrie and Regent, you know, I, I'm like, that's the golden era. Is there, su- that's the golden era of study centers, but that's because I don't know anything about study centers. Is there still like, would, would a university student do well to make sure they went to a school where there was like a specific study center or are they still sort of like trying to redefine the model for 2021? That's a great question. I, you know, so yeah, I think here's, I'll tell you this. When I think about my four kids and where I would want them to go to school, like I have debates, my wife and I have debates. Would it be better to go to Christian liberal arts school or would it be better to go to a major state university with a study center? Mm. And sometimes I lean that way. Mm. I just think there's a compelling, uh, I think it's a really compelling model and and there's just built in community at these places for Christian students who show up. Mm. Um, That's one of the reasons why, you know, I think there's no reason why the study center movement couldn't just grow by leaps and bounds in the next decade. Mm. Um, There's a lot of people with these kind of Orthodox Christian sensibilities that are well-educated now that have a love for the university Um, And there's a lot of universities that don't have a study center, you know, and I just think we could use even more of these for sure. All right. Just as we're winding down, brother, I I'm a I'm 41. I live in I live in pretty rural Hawaii in this Kailua Kona is the name of the town. It's pretty small. Um, And then I know a lot of our listeners are all over the country and all over the world. And they're they're older. They're like 30, 40, a, a lot of them. Um, and most of them are done with university and school, but when we read these books and we read of this, uh, of these things, like our, 
our options are like, do we just try to bring this hospitality and discussions of everything into our local church context? Or is that trying to like, is that trying to, you know, is that, is that kicking against the goads of the set pattern or should we like start something like what, what, what are our options out there? And part of that, and it's the last question, would you tell us about, about what you got cooking over there? Yeah, sure. I think the answer to your first question, should it be in the church or start something? I think the answer is yes. You know, I think, you know, I think back to Ralph Winter and his idea, you know, talk about the mission societies and the church and, and Christianity, God's mission want needed and had plans for or at least it was designed to include both you know these yeah. kind of parachurch and church structures and so it's really it does come down to what god's leading you to what was is the opening but i mean houston was not young and he had four kids when he moves across the world to, to be the founding president of region oh, you wow. know with four with a summer school and then four full-time students right um and and that's that was a really I mean, their model was like designed to be accredited and stuff. Whereas a study center can start really small with mm -hmm. a local group of people that say, we're going to have a little library. We're going to have some book chats. You know, we might not even need full-time staff right away or ever, you know, my heart is to see study centers at smaller colleges, you know, mm -hmm. the big fancy colleges have deep pocketed donors and alumni pools and they can fund all this. And everyone thinks they're cool and want to move there. What about like the second tier state school? You know, oh, what about on, bro. smaller places, right? There is a huge, huge opening. And guess what? In places like where I live, it costs way less to start something like this, to buy a house because people are moving out of town anyway, right? So buy a house near a college. It could be a small state school and start doing this. Wow. There's tons of room. Wow. Um, and you could be a pastor too or a church planner too and do it, you know, make sure it's sustainable, have a team. It can happen. Um, <laughs> and then... One, I mean, my heart for that comes out of my own life, moving back to the same place I grew up. I, my wife and I are both from a town that used to have 1,200 people, now has less than 1,100 people. And we're ministering 20 minutes away in a town that used to have 20,000 people that now has 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it's the biggest town in an hour. And it was formerly the headquarters of Quaker State Motor Oil. It was like the birthplace of the petroleum industry. But then when Quaker State moved out to Dallas in 94, you can imagine when the corporate headquarters of a company like that moves out of your yeah. town, 20,000, what happens? Mm -hmm. um, so I have a heart for these rural places and God opened up a door for me to work with this uh, project at rural ministry of rural ministry uh, um, at those city colleges, the Lilly uh, endowment funded five-year project. And we're trying to see what we can do to resource rural pastors in our region um, and learn from them as a Christian liberal arts school, you know, because, Christian liberal arts schools in some of these rural communities are like islands unto themselves. And we're saying like, yeah. how can we use these resources yeah. to bless rural pastors? And what can we learn about rural ministry that we might not know from them who happen to be just miles down the road? So that's so what if they So if, we, if folks living in that area, um, they got to check you out. We'll link it up. And I'll tell you what, what happens when all those people move out of town. Good, good country music songs get written. That's, that's what right. happens. I bet there's some... I bet there's some good wailing and singing over there. That's right. That's right. I'm, you know, we're trying to write, I'm trying to do it. Uh, trying to write a book about what it's like to come back. There's so many books about what it's like to leave. I want to say, what's it like to come back and see God at work. Right. Oh, come, um, so, come so, uh, you know, say a prayer for me. Uh, 
you know, you try to do that in a small place and you keep hearing platform, platform. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's hard to build a platform here, but I'm just trying to be faithful, <laughs> see what God does. Bro, you're a person of peace, man. We will pray for you on that. Um, with, folks can follow you um, on Twitter at C.E. Uh, Cotterman. So C is in cat, E is in Edward. And it's like Cotherman. But yeah. we'll link that up. And then um, the book, the book is called To Think Christianly, A History of Labrie, Regent College, and the Christian Study um, Movement. And that's IVP. Super good book. And we'll give a, a copy away. Brother, um, we really, we really will pray for you. And for those listeners, um, please, you know, as, as the music fades out, um, pray for, pray for brother Chuck and his Ohana and that church and the work there. Thank you so much for your time, man. Yeah. Thank you. It's been great. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to leave.